Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Hi, welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm Dan Taylor and I'm here with John Micton. How are you doing, John? Good, Dan. Thank you very much. Great. Well, we, today we've got Clive Watkins on. Really interesting, something I've been looking forward to. Clive, um, I met Clive when he was in Prague uh, at, at the International School of Prague, and obviously John Mixon knows him from there. And he's now in, uh, in Tokyo, Japan, in the American School in Japan, where John Mixon also works. So I want to learn a bit about Clive's background. You know, Clive's a very sort of, you know, debonair, mysterious figure. I've been doing a lot of different things. So I want to find out a bit about what he's been up to and, and what it's like living in Japan. So welcome to the podcast, Clive. Well, thanks, Dan. But now I'm going to have to ruin your, your image of me. Um, yeah. I know what a norm, normal, all-round nice guy, just normal guy. I know. Exactly. Yeah. You can be debonair and a nice guy. It's not, a, not mutually exclusive, Clive. Yeah, cool. So, um, Clive, I mean, I guess I'm really interested in your background because you you started off in banking and got into education. So do you want to talk us through like what, what, what you did after university, how you got into banking, and then how you decided to make the move to go into, into schools? Oh, my goodness. How long is this podcast? Uh, <laughs> a day. Yeah. Well, when I was a child. Um, so let's see. Uh, how far back should I go? So I have an undergraduate degree in French from the University of Florida, great bastion of French culture. And, um, uh, you know, after I got out of um, University of Florida, people said, what are you going to do with that? And I went to go live in France. And um, I really enjoyed what I was doing. Uh, one thing I should say is that my dad passed away at a, at a young age. And I remember my mother, and he was an academic, he was a professor of oceanography. And um, my mother was a librarian. And I remember my mother saying to me, Clive, don't go into business because people in business make money, but they don't like what they do. And so I just sort of had that in the back of my head, got my degree in French, went to go live in France and work for a, a luxury bicycle tour company. And um, I try to make a longish story short. I ended up setting up my own business and really enjoyed it um, and moved back to the States. I met my wife, uh, Tasha, over there. We moved back to the States and I was working for a software startup in New York. And um, I decided to go to graduate school at Babson and get my MBA um, because what I had learned- What was your business, by the way, Clive? Sorry to interrupt, but what was your business? 
It was tourism. It was, uh, it was a tourism business. I, I, there's no doubt about it that I am a people person and I like traveling. And so that was a great thing to be in. Um, and so I, I, I very much enjoyed that. Um, but it, it never seemed like that was what I was uh, destined to do. Um, we moved back to the States. I worked for a software startup uh, in New York. And um, that seemed to sort of go sputtering along for a while. And I didn't see, I actually made the right decision because that, that software company didn't take off. Um, but I went to Babson, um, got my MBA. I think by that point in my career, I probably knew 80% already of what they were teaching me. Um, but I would say that the 20% was key. Uh, and I ended up with a piece of paper, more importantly, that said that I knew what I was doing. And um, I ended up get, taking a position with a Swedish uh, group in Luxembourg, uh, where John is now, and um, uh, was working for them for several years. That was, that was a lot of fun. But I mean, to get to the crux of the matter, one of the things that I was doing, the pri primary thing that I was doing was issuing credit cards to people. And it's a very lucrative business, but at the end of the day, it's quite a soul-sapping business. Uh, you're making your money off of uh, people getting into debt. You're trying to get 18-year-olds to, to uh, get into debt. And um, I didn't enjoy it. Um, and as fate would have it, my boss uh, passed away. Uh, and um, I stopped working there. We went back to the United States. I was doing some consulting work for Econo. Uh, which is the finance arm of Ikea. And my uh, older son, uh, we were sending him to a private school in Rhode Island called St. Andrews. And they asked if I would help out with their fundraising. And um, I started doing that. And I found myself getting up in the morning thinking about that uh, rather than uh, you know credit card issuing, things like that. So um, I went to work for them full time. I really enjoyed doing it. Um, and uh, I was speaking at a conference. A gentleman came up to me and asked if I would consider uh, um, doing what I do internationally. And that was how I ended up being introduced to Arnie Bieber at the International School of Prague and went over there for an interview and, um, and started doing that. So I feel like in the end, I was able to bring some of my background or a lot of my background together. Uh, my interest in finance, um, my interest in raising money um, to help kids to go to these sorts of, of schools. I would have to say that I am a believer in private education, but given what we're talking about, let me actually narrow that down a little more. I'm a believer in international school education, but only to the extent that we're able to help share that with, with kids who would like that education, but perhaps can't afford to go there themselves. And so Clive, you mean by that, like scholarship programs, financial aid, just for our audience. So it, it's basically creating financial workflows where parents can apply for a scholarship or some financial aid. Yeah, that's, that's it. Exactly. So, um, you know, at the International School of Prague, when I first got there, there was uh, a scholarship program, but it was an unfunded, well, I'll call it an unfunded scholarship program. There was some space in the, in the high school, the upper school. And so they were, they had a process and they would have perhaps four 
local students um, who were going to the school, but the school wasn't receiving any money. I mean, there was sort of the, I think, uh, you know, the, the families had to have some skin in the game and they were paying a small amount to go to the school, but the school wasn't getting the rest of the money. And that is not sustainable because at a certain point in time, the board of trustees is going to be asked to make a decision between a paying student and what amounts to a non-paying student. And their fiscal responsibility will say, we must take the paying student, especially when a school is, is entirely tuition driven. However, if you start an endowment, let's say, uh, and people are donating money, putting money into the endowment, and you're raising enough so that eventually, you know, that endowment is invested and, it, and you're only using the money that comes off of that endowment. And let's say that it is restricted for financial aid. Now there's no reason to get rid of that program and make a choice between the two because the school doesn't care where the money comes from as long as the money comes in, yeah? So um, now it's no longer a choice between a paying student and non-paying student because whether the parents are paying, a company's paying, a government is paying, or whether the school's own endowment is paying, the money is there to keep the operating budget going. And, you know, I can go into a lot more detail about the importance of that, of that type of uh, setup for nonprofit international schools, but I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if I've answered your question. Clive, on that, I think what you're highlighting is also there's there's a perception or maybe a misunderstanding, maybe, that people look at that type of fundraising as an extra workflow and what happens if the money drives, dries out. And I think what you're saying is if you set it up the way you described, then you have that sustainability and maybe that's some of the learning curve for schools. Is that true or? Yeah. Um, so. So let's get to the, the crux of the matter. Um, 20 years ago, as little as 20 years ago, I'm gonna make up some stats, but I think they're kind of kind of close. Um, you had perhaps 10% of international schools were, were for-profit, 90% non-profit. And that has completely reversed now. Now you've got yeah, it's like 80% for-profit and 20 non-profit, depending on how you how you classify it. That's as far as I, close as I can get to actual numbers now. Yeah. Um, anyway, I mean, it's a, it's a big number. And also you're talking about a, a drastic increase in the number of schools um, yeah. altogether. And let's look at the competitive difference between these. Now, just because a school is nonprofit does not uh, insulate a school from market forces. They're still, they're still liable to all of the market forces that, that come along. Um, and so off the top, if you're just tuition driven, you've got the the nonprofit schools, uh, sorry, the for-profit schools that are tuition driven. And they also, if they have a lot of uh, schools, so you take North Anglia, for instance, the last I looked, they had 60 schools, but I think they're up to about 80 at, the, at this point. And they have, can centralize an administration and have one administrative office for, for those schools. And so they're already at a cost savings just on that angle over a nonprofit school. Nonprofit schools, you know, people would say, oh, what does the International School of Prague have to do with the American school in Japan? They think there's some sort of alliance or something with international schools. They're not. And so they each have their own administrative areas. And how are they going to compete? Uh, and one of the main ways for them to compete is to use an income stream that is not available 
to the for-profit schools. And that revenue stream is fundraising. And so, but it's not something that has traditionally been there for international schools. Even today, you can point uh, you know, at, at the few schools that are doing it. American School in Japan is one of them. Um, uh, the American School in London is, a, is another one, uh, a Singapore American School. So these, these, these schools have been doing it for a while and they're seeing a measure of, of success um, to doing this. And the goal is to have that long-term stability. Forget whether you're, you know, let's just take a standalone international nonprofit school that is solely working off of, off of tuition. And they have various ways. People say, well, there's other ways to raise money. Okay, well, what are those ways of raising money? Uh, you could cram more students in each class. Well, that's gonna ruin the learning outcomes. You're gonna ruin your reputation. You could become a bigger school so that you fit more, you know, students in there. Um, you could charge for EAL or learning support or all of those things or busing to have summer programs. But all of those things that I'm suggesting have an upper end to what they can possibly um, bring in to, to the school. And if you do it well, you're quickly going to achieve the, 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 that income. And even if you do do all of that, you're still not insulated against a downturn in the economy. We have all work at schools. We work for schools where they're trying to improve everything that they do. They're in constant uh, mode of improvement, bringing in new people, hiring new people, and they're doing it based on tuition revenue. Now, if they hit, you know, American school in Japan 10 years ago, as everyone knows, there was a terrible earthquake uh, with a tsunami and everything else. And ASIJ's uh, enrollment went down by about 17%. Now, nobody knew how quickly it would come back again. It did come back, but they're a tuition-driven school. And so immediately, despite all the improvements that have been made, it's the fiscal responsibility of the administration of that school and the trustees to cut programs, cut positions, and inevitably cut their reputation somewhat and hope that it comes back again. Now, you take a school that has a significant endowment and they're going along and they have fee-paying students and they hit this bump and it goes down. Um, they have their endowment. Now, I'm not suggesting that they go from having 2,000 students to 1,000 and just keep everybody there, but you could take money from that that's dedicated to financial aid, accept more students who can't perhaps pay the full amount, but they can pay half of it or a quarter yeah, of yeah. it, and you keep your operating budget going along nicely. You don't have to cut programs. You don't have to cut staff, and you keep improving your, your reputation. Um, and so that is such an important concept for administrators and trustees to grasp. I quite often see uh, at international schools that the trustees are made up of um, current parents. And that, that's not inherently a bad thing. They get training. They understand what their role is. Um, and, and by the way, their role is to not think about the school of today but at least 10 years from now, if not 20 years from now. What will a board of 20 years from now think about what we did today to secure the future of, uh, of this school? And uh, yeah, they, they 
one of the things I think one of the few things that they can do to really secure that future is to think about how they're going to build up um, uh, an income. Sorry, I've been distracted because no, the young good. lady came to, to get this. Let me just shut the door here too. <laughs> Am I blabbing on too much or? No, 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 all good, Clive. So Clive, really interesting. I'm, um, you know, I've only ever heard about endowments in the context of like Harvard and, and Yale and stuff. I think one of those has like a billion or several billion dollars in endowments. It's like absolutely insane money. You'd think they could give free tuition to everyone with that, with that kind of money. But um, is how, how many international schools have endowments? Do, do any of the for-profit ones? I guess they don't. I guess it's just we're talking about the traditional international schools, maybe there's some of the religious affiliated ones that have this kind of thing. Um, I don't know the answer to your question, uh, but I can say that, I mean, with regards to a for-profit school, there would be no, there's no such thing as an endowment. Yeah. Uh, uh, they've got their shareholders to fall back on if yeah. they need more, more money. Um, and they're looking, you know, at the abyss, then I guess they got to go to their investors and uh, get some, some more money out of it. Um, let's take a look at the traditional uh, American prep school model. Um, Phillips Exeter Academy has um, 1,200 students. It's a high school. It's a boarding school. And they have an endowment that's worth $1.3 billion. Okay. They've been doing, been doing fundraising for um, 100 years or more. And that's what they're looking at right now. But I look at them, and I, that, that is what I think of when I'm talking about security, okay, securing the future of the school they are able to ride out the storm. Now you could ask, well, how much is enough? Um, and there is a sort of a back of the envelope calculation that, that uh, you could do um, about how much is enough. Um, but for me, um, and I think perhaps Exeter has enough, although, uh, but, but you know, they, they quite often what they say, and, it, and it's true, is that when people give to the endowment, they're generally giving to the endowment for a, a particular cause that, that, they, that they want. And it could be financial aid, but it could be that they want to endow um, the chair for, um, for poetry, for, for example. Um, and, and what they're doing by doing that is saying that, that poetry is important enough for me that if ever there's a downturn in the economy and you're needing to cut positions, I want to make sure that poetry continues at this school. And so they put a couple of million dollars into the endowment. The money that comes off of that is restricted for a poetry teacher. And so when they're looking at what they're going to cut, they go, oh, well, there's no point in cutting the poetry position because we have money for it and it can only be used for that. So, yeah. But I think, Clive, what's very interesting about this idea of endowment, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's a very North American-centric uh, <clears throat> thing. I, I know that both my children uh, went one to Canada and one to the United States, and both their universities, the endowments, McGill and University of Michigan, it's just mind-boggling, their endowments. But I know, having worked in international schools, this was always a creative tension for international schools, as you described, this shift from for-profit coming into the marketplace and having more competition and maybe tuition fluctuation occurring. Suddenly, you need to, need to look for a different income stream. But I don't think the mindset in general was there 
with this idea of endowment. And I think, you know, people like yourself and other people in schools really had to do a certain amount of education. And do you feel that there's a greater awareness today or is there still that, you know, I, I'm curious because we're not talking about for-profits, but ASIJ, American School of Japan, Singapore American School, American School of London, I know have always worked with this philosophy, but note that their names have the word American in them. So they come from a culture where they're familiar with it. I know that International School of Prague, that was an unknown quantity. That was not part of the cultural map. So maybe talk to us about what are the challenges of getting people to switch and understand this when they've had a culture where that has not occurred? Yeah. Um, well, I think you've nailed it. It's a, it's a question of education. Um, and um, I have, uh, you know, I worked at ISP um, and I work at ASIJ. I have consulted for several schools. And I think it, it's, it's true, again, going back to the idea that there are current parents on the board, but assuming best intentions, um, regardless of whether they're a parent, alum, or, or what have you, um, the best intention is that they want to see the school improve and be there um, forever. And they, these people don't understand exactly how we're going to get there. And so uh, I've been talking, we went down this path of endowment, but, you know, it's not like uh, you bring in this this magic person with fairy dust who's going to make people part with all their money and 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 give it to an endowment all of a sudden. And so to, to seize on that that thing about education, um, a school must become a fundraising school. Uh, and I, I separate that from a school that does fundraising. Because a school that does that treats it like a school that does fundraising is like a school that does robotics. Someone comes into the building, says, where's the robotics thing? You go down the hallway, it's over there. Oh, do you do fundraising? Yes, there's some guy working in a, in a broom closet over there, and they do fundraising. It, it's not just the trustees. It, it's a matter of education throughout the school of what everybody's role is in this. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm hacking this up a little bit, but if I go back to, even if we talk about Prague, um, I think you were, you may have been there when the school was under the embassy. Uh, and yes, then, I was. Yes, I so was. Like 2008, it came out from under the embassy. And so up until then, and I hope I'm not insulting anyone by saying this, but a lot of these international schools, uh, what they strive to be was a good imitation of a very good American public school. That was the sort of people that they were serving, you know, diplomats and, and things like that. And then they came out from under the umbrella, the embassy, and all of a sudden they are a real entity, as, as I said before, facing market forces. And so they must start looking at those things. Um, I think you're right that uh, in the 10 years since I arrived in Prague and now, now I'm here, there's definitely more of an awareness that the job of a director of these schools now includes an understanding of fundraising. How are we going to set the school up for the future? And before that, that wasn't part of it. That has always been part of a, of a job when you're looking at the uh, principle, let's say, of, a, of an American prep school with, with an endowment. Clive, Dan I'm interested... Um... 
your role, Director of Advancement, the thing that's quite good about this podcast is I think we get in some different roles and maybe people will listen to this and think maybe that's something I would like to do. Like, w- w- what is it? Apart, I mean, obviously we know about fundraising. Is, is that the main part of your job? I, know, I remember when you were at International School of Prague, you were involved in the branding, you know, the, the new website and, and, the, and the signs, which are all still there. I drove past it this morning, dropping my son at preschool. Um, so, like, what, what, what is your role and, and what, like, what sort of people would you think it would suit? So advancement um, is really anything that has to do with advancing the school's mission, um, helping the school to achieve its mission. And fundraising doesn't happen in a, in a, in a bubble. Um, you know, as I was saying before, that you, you don't just walk up to someone and ask them for money. Um, you're trying to find the link between your potential donors and the school and how those overlap. Um, so uh, we, and this also depends on uh, the type of school you're at. You know, for me at the schools that I'm at, um, I have been at, it's more of sort of a startup position. And so, and that, that suits my mentality that I like to have my fingers in a lot of things um, not controlling everything, but uh, it, it gives me a good idea for what's going on. So International School of Prague, admissions reported to the advancement office. Um, we did the marketing, the branding, alumni relationships, um, fundraising. So all of those things. Yeah. Uh, I will be the first to say that, um, you know, it's what, one of the issues that some some of these schools have is they hire a person or a couple of people and think, oh, well, we're going to have the same sort of success as as, a, as an Exeter or an Andover or even American School in London or so, something like that. And the way I look at it is it's one thing to kick off a business with a couple of people. But after a while, you need to ramp up the, the business um, in order to see more of a return. And I do see some schools where it just sort of gets... Um, uh, stopped at a, at a certain level. So personally speaking, I enjoy, and I am moderately good at all of the various things that, that I was just talking about. If you were to hire one person to do marketing, I might not even be that person that you want to hire, but if you want somebody who's doing marketing and fundraising and alumni, then you know, all of these sorts of things, then I enjoy being involved in all those things. And I like to get them off the ground, but after a while, need to start thinking, okay, well, it's like, it's like you guys, if you were to start a business, you might do everything, even though you don't like doing the sales end of things. And after yeah. you start to approve the concept, you're going to bring in a salesperson because they're better at it and they like doing it and it allows, you know, the, the business to grow. So yeah, I hope I've answered your question with that, that it, it, depending on the, on the school, advancement is at the end of the day about fundraising and hopefully you do all of those other things that I was talking about well enough to allow the fundraising to happen. Interesting. I'm talking to the American School of of London. I was just actually there on Friday. I just got back from a quick visit to London and uh, that's a that's an impressive school actually just because they've actually managed to get a lot of local like British families to send their kids there which is quite impressive to have an American school in England to get local parents to send their kids. I'm, I'm impressed they achieve that, you know? And they have a big scholarship program. So many of those kids yeah, yeah. that are coming in from the English community are children that might never have gone to a public, private British school. Yeah, and yeah. they have tapped into that. And they've made that a big part of their mission 
Uh, I know in Prague, you were very much involved uh, with uh, the scholarship program that was a big part of the mission. So, I, I, Clive, you know, so if somebody's thinking, oh, I want to be in international schools, I would like to get into investment. I assume having that business background, maybe having worked in a business, I mean, a lot of those dispositions and, and kind of skill sets and knowledge definitely come from more of a banking background or understanding the complexity of finance. And of course, admissions and branding and website and fundraising are so different, but what is kind of the broad background that you would encourage people or is it really, it, it, I don't think you can define it that specifically, can you? No, um, you know, I've, I have a lot of people asking me all the time, do I know of anybody uh, for these positions? Uh, there's a lot of schools that are looking to, to have advancement directors. And uh, from the school's end of things, um, you know, it, it doesn't take me long to figure out whether or not a school is really being realistic about what they're thinking of. You know, maybe you had somebody join the board of trustees who was from a school uh, or knows about fundraising and is saying, this is what we should be doing as a school, but they're not willing to outlay the money that they need to, to put out there to really get someone who knows, knows their stuff and is going to be dedicated to, to doing it. Um, I've seen schools that, you know, they want to have somebody who does soup to nuts, everything, and they're, they're paying next to nothing. And they're at the end of the day, I'm sorry, but they are not going to get somebody who is dedicated and experienced to come and work for, for that much money. And I would actually uh, caution a, uh, you know, somebody who, who has the ability um, from going to, to a place like that, because it's not a good start if, if that's what they're looking at. So they really need before, uh, from the school's end of things, really need to look, get somebody in there to give them an idea about what we're talking about here when it comes to advancement. What might be the way to get things off the ground at this place? And what do you need in order, in the way of staffing and person, to get this off the ground. And that directly translates to the other end of people uh, who are thinking about getting into this position. Well, if you don't have a background in fundraising at all, um, I, I, you, you need to go get a background in fundraising. You need to work in an advancement office somewhere um, before- Fundraising or something. Yes, exa exactly. Um, and again, who are we talking about here? Because it, uh, another thing that I, I recognize is that 10 years ago, people thought, well, if we're looking for a fundraiser, we have to go find an American um, to, to do this. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case anymore. Britain has been doing this for quite a while. So have the French, so have the Australians. Um, and so you don't necessarily have to find a, um, uh, you know, an American to go and do that. Uh, but again, so let's say that you do have somebody who has the right, right um, background, has financial ability, um, just sort of understands general business processes. There's not a lot of difference between nonprofit and, and, and for profit and uh, sales background, um, you know, any of those any of those sort, sorts of things. Um, and then uh, some people might be thinking that they, they're, they're going to enjoy this, but I will tell you culture shock is a real thing. 
And even for those of us who move country to country, it can hit you when you least expect it. Um, so if you have no experience in living in other countries, uh, so and I, I emphasize living because uh, not just going on a, on a trip somewhere, um, then you should really question if, if this is something that, that you want to be doing. So. Because I'm sure when you are, especially in your role, as you navigate different schools, there the culture of the country also has an impact on the attitude towards the work that you're doing because you have the parent community. Often the trustees are from the local community. So you have to kind of also navigate that those cultural nuances as you start approaching people with this idea about fundraising and endowments, I imagine. Yes, um, there there is definitely some truth to that. Although I that that is sometimes what I would call you know you guys know what FAQs are. Well, I've got FUDs, um, FUDs, frequently used denials about about why a school oh well we can't possibly do fundraising here, and one of them is because we're not American or we're mostly you know fill in fill in the blank, and going back to you know the word education again, John. Um, it's my experience that uh, Americans don't come out of the womb predisposed to give their money away. Uh, it's, a, it's a matter of like, that's how they grow up. The, the charity and fundraising is, is sort of a part, part of what they do. And so these schools, again, when they become a fundraising school, uh, not just a school that does fundraising, but a fundraising school, these are schools that it's front and center. It's on their website. It's on their application materials. Um, they're not afraid to, to pull this out and say that we're a fundraising school. Tuition, put it this way. Um, if I'm sending my kid to a, to a school, I'm hoping that they're not just resting on their laurels. I'm hoping that that is an aspirational school. They are aspiring to be better. And if you're limiting yourself to tuition income, you're basically limited by the market about what you can charge because these are what your competitors can charge. So you're all sort of trying to do a little bit better than each other. We're aspirational. No, we're aspirational. Let's face it, aspirations cost money. And in fact, if a school says it's aspirational and it doesn't need more money, then I would question how high those aspirations are. And so in order to, to meet those aspirations, we must fundraise. We must bring in as much money as possible. And as we hit those, those goals, we'll do more things. We'll hire more people. We'll hire a, a service learning coordinator. We'll hire child protection. We'll, you know, whatever it is that's going to result in better learning outcomes for the students. What are you, um, I'm just curious about like a few examples of what fundraising entails. It's kind of interesting to me. I, I imagine you know, you're, you're, you're talking to parents of, uh, parents, alumni, maybe are you, are you, does it involve running events to, for the business community and things like, does it involve much kind of out, outside outreach outside of the sort of school community? So my thinking on this has evolved, um, over the years. Um, there is a time and place for events, um, at a school, uh, but I, I would look at events more as community building things. I'm not a big fan anymore of uh, holding events in order to raise money. Because a school that can successfully become a fundraising school is going to base their the income not on, on holding you know, a, a knockdown drag out event, um, but on the community buying into the idea, uh, the alumni and everybody else, that this school is worth supporting financially to the point where people 
don't they want to give their money to see the school improve, not to see you know a great party. Um, now, to you're sort of asking, well, what are the different ways of, of raising money? And I would not leave out uh, corporate fundraising. There are there's there is a time and a place for that. Uh, you know, if you go into the International School of Prague, there's a big oak board there with brass plaques of the names of companies that have donated to the scholarship um, program. And and that's okay in my book. Now, I, I'm not going to have some weapons manufacturer you know, up there. You have to come up with your own policies with that. But I don't have a problem in banners around the football pitches, for example, saying that Skoda uh, supports the um, scholarship program at the International School of Prague in that instance. Um, however, let me put this on the record, that... Uh, Sometimes when a school is just getting going and you have uh, trustees in, in, involved in this and they're, they're excited to get things going, they've got dollar signs or euro signs in their, in their eyes, and, and then you go in and you start an annual fund and you say that the person who gives 10 euro is very important and you get these people getting frustrated. It's like, I, I, I don't care about those people. I want millions. I want millions. Now, far be it from me to say that we shouldn't immediately go and try to get them. If these people have already been cultivated in such a way that you think that they are ready to give, you know, five million euro to help you build this building that, that you want to build, let's go. Let's go go to it. But just because you hire someone who's the advancement director and you know someone with a lot of money does not mean that person is going to give, you know, a lot of money to the school. So you sort of have to... Uh, uh, put those notions out of your mind immediately. Again, I mean, if these people are ready to give, then then let's go get the money from them. But otherwise, you have to institute a culture of giving at the school. And that starts with an annual fund. And what that means is that every single year, everybody in the community should be asked to give to the annual fund. And even better, they should be asked by, <clears throat> excuse me, by the right person. There's a saying in philanthropy that it happens when the right person asks the right person for the right amount at the right time for the right project in the right way. And so yet again, this person that you've hired to bring in is not the person who goes around and asks everybody in the community because they're not going to be the right person. You have to build up a, a, a large number of people on your annual fund committee or your advancement committee who are willing to ask for the money. And if you can get there, then it can become very, very successful to turn into a fundraising community. Now, the other thing about that annual fund, so that, that money from the annual fund is coming in and it is going into the operating budget. Okay, That's what it's used for. It's unrestricted money. A lot of times people will say, well, I'll give you money, but I want it to go for this little pet project that I have. No, no. The budget that is set, we have tuition revenue, and let's just say we have annual fund revenue, and we estimate both of those things, and it goes in and it makes a nice pile of money, and we decide what we're going to do with, with that money. And if we're, we fall short on tuition or we fall short on the annual fund, well, we'll have to get the money from somewhere to meet to 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 spend it that that year. But next year, we're going to cut back on certain things. So when people say, "What does the annual fund money go for?" It goes towards everything. Now you can look backwards and you can say, "You know, look, everybody, it helped to fund this and it helped to fund that." But no more so than tuition helped to fund those things. Sure. What you want to do is build that up, and 
And it, because it's an annual fund, it's giving you the opportunity to remind returning people and tell new people about um, the importance of fundraising at the school. Now, what's going to happen is some people are just going to give you $10,000 or they give you $20,000 and like, well, thank you very much. You know, next year we're going to up our goal for what we're going to get. But the other thing is that now this person has identified themselves as having the means and the desire to help the school. And this is where you start, the word development comes in. And there's nothing, you know, untoward about what I'm saying. It's you want to meet this person and you want to find out what is your interest, you know, in the school? What programs are you interested in? And was thinking about doing a master plan, building something, you want to have the opinion of this person. If you're expecting this person to have any desire in the end of helping the school to build, you know, a new science center or something, you need to know that that person. And so that annual fund, that conversation would not have happened in general if you had not had that annual fund and had those people giving as they went along. That's so interesting. And one thing, Clive, you were describing about sponsorship for, uh, you know, scholarship programs and that involvement of the corporate world. There's quite a lot of cynicism often from a staff that are in the school when they start seeing flyers of a corporation. The resistance, I don't know if I want to call resistance or the maybe the lack of understanding or the lack of clarity sometimes is from the staff because you say fundraising school means everybody's involved. That uh, teachers, when they're in a social event or they're interacting, there is this kind of mindset, we're a fundraising school. We're not fundraising, we're a fundraising school. Talk to us a bit about how in your role you educate the internal community, because there's the external community that we've kind of been focusing on. What about the internal community where you have educators and staff members that maybe are thinking, why would I donate? I'm not getting paid enough or whatever it might be. You know, that, that would be interesting to hear your take on Because I think it's true that sometimes people leave that out of the equation. Um, you know, in the United States, if you're, if you're working at a school, some schools qualify for grants from, from various foundations. And when you fill in the grant request, it says, um, and, and they're giving, these places are giving to the annual fund, the operating budget. And they say, what percentage of your alumni are giving? What percentage of your parents? They say, what percentage of your faculty and staff are giving to it? And they want to see a high number because these foundations don't want to be the only person that's, you know, giving money to it. And so um, it, it is important to ensure that you, your faculty and of why we're a fundraising school and be completely transparent um, about it. I, I, I think, you know, I, I hesitate to speculate about why, you know, a teacher, let's say, would not want to support the annual fund, but it could be like, like this is a wealthy school. The people who go to this school are wealthy um, and we should be giving to something outside. Now, I would also be the first person to say that if we in life were only allowed to give to one charity out there, then 
you know, perhaps giving to these these types of schools is not where, where money should be put. But fortunately, we're not limited to that. We can decide where we want our um, donation. My feeling is that, um, that the administration of a school should be radically transparent about its finances. Now, I'm not saying that, that that means people, you know, what's everybody's salary, for for example, but explaining to everybody in, in very clear terms about the economics of these schools. Because again, it's not a public school. And just because it's nonprofit does not isolate it from the vagaries of the market. And so let's take a look. Every year, there should be a transparent explanation of what the finances for the school were. How did we do last year? What are what are what savings does the school have? Are people paid a certain amount? I mean, you guys know that it is the, the perennial issue with with schools that you have people who are hired domestically get a salary. Whereas people who do exactly the same job but were hired as expats come with the salary and an expat package, you know, and having to explain those things uh, year after year. But again, it shouldn't be avoided. These things should be put on the table and saying these are the fundamentals of an international school. And the reason we need this much money as savings, as an endowment, is to you know, sustain ourselves, sustain our reputation, sustain our programs, sustain our people, if in fact there is a downward turn. All these things that we would love to have to have learn better learning outcomes are going to depend on us raising that money. And I remember the first year I got to Prague, uh, we did that. And there was a math teacher whose name I forget, um, but uh, he came into my office afterwards and said, I wanna thank you so much for um, putting that out there. We did it with, you know, Barry Freckman and did the finances and I explained fundraising. And, you know, it's, uh, I think people react well to understanding better the finances of where they're working. Definitely. Yeah, and I think so often it's, it, it feels like it's shrouded in mystery or there says there, you know, where we've taken a financial dip, all budgets are cut and people are, are then seeing other things happening in the school. And they're like, well, that doesn't make sense. And you get that cynicism. So. I, I really like that approach that you have about being transparent, being very clear where this money goes, what are the pinch points, and then people walk away with a better understanding. Because so often I think it's just a lack of clarity or transparency that generates the cynicism. That, uh, and and if I could add one, one thing to that is, you know, if the only time you're going to talk to your, I'm, I'm going to say employees at this point, about finances is when you're about to, and take something away from them, th then is not the time for transparency. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, this is why it needs to be an ongoing thing about, yeah, about part of the culture. Part, part of this fundraising school would be that we're transparent about our budget to our community and our staff. Right. Definitely. Guys, we're almost out of time. I will finish really quickly talking about Japan. It's one of my favorite countries. Uh, obviously, we could talk probably another two hours about this topic. But John, I mean, uh, first of all, for you, like as a quick snapshot, like what was life like when you were there? Were you, were you living in a typical kind of small Tokyo apartment, cycling to work? Was it a, what, what was your life like when you when you were there? So I'm not a very good example because I lived in Japan in the late 80s, not as an educator. 
and I lived in a small Japanese town up in the mountains. So I actually was very familiar with Japan when I came to SIJ, and I lived in the little box apartment. Actually, at SIJ, I lived in a very nice house by a park. So, uh, So I would say that, you know, my experience of Japan when I came back was more being an expat, because the first time around, I was the only foreigner in my office. So I, there was not even an expat. I was just part of the Japanese community in that context. So coming back as an expat was interesting because I already had the language, which I think is a huge advantage. And I think Japanese language is quite challenging. And I know that often in any international school, you have a bit of a bubble and you can kind of mitigate having to learn the language because you can depend on each other. So for me, it was a very positive experience. I liked living in a bigger house than a traditional Japanese because I was on a Japanese salary with a Japanese government organization. So my apartment was very tiny. So I, it was a very positive experience. And at that time, I think, you know, ASIJ had a long history, the infrastructure, the orientation, it's just very well done. And uh, we were well welcomed. I felt completely supported in every aspect. And I think they do a good job of cushioning some of those things that you mentioned, living in a little box apartment and having to cycle to work. There is just a wonderful transition and point people that help you through that. So I would say my experience was very positive. When I moved for the first time, that was very different because I landed in this town and nobody spoke English and people were like, oh, this is where your desk is. I was like, okay, what do I do? And everybody was like, I don't know. Uh, So, you know, because I didn't speak the language. So, you know, that was the big uh, motivator. So, no, very, uh, I have such great memories. And I think international schools often and in the case of, I know many in Japan do a wonderful job of getting staff as they come in to understand the nuances of the culture and really provide them with structures and resources for that transition. That doesn't mean you don't have the culture shock, but I think it does give you a bit of an advantage. If you, like Dan, you flew into Tokyo, found an apartment and moved into a local neighborhood. Yeah, interesting. How, how are you finding things, Clive? Obviously, you, you went there during COVID, so I'm not sure how much you've been getting out, but how's, what's life like there? Obviously, a big question. But... Well, you know, we decided uh, we'd been in Prague for 10 years. Both our kids were graduating and leaving. Why not move halfway around the world in a pandemic? <laughs> that we didn't know anything about. Um, uh, so first of all, I would say, uh, the the experience I've had, uh, again, this is during the pandemic, the Japanese people are wonderful. I know that their culture at the moment is not known to me. It's, um, and that's, that's nobody's fault other than my own in the pandemic. Um, but from the exposure that I've had, I find the Japanese people to be wonderful. Um, I've seen not a lot of the country, but I've seen some of it. Uh, and it, it's beautiful. Um, Tasha this summer actually drove uh, in, in our car with the dog up to Hokkaido, the, you know, the northern island, and went uh, hiking by herself with, 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 the, with the dog. Doesn't speak any Japanese at all, but, but managed to, to get by. And she said it was, it was beautiful up there. So I'm looking forward to seeing more um, when, when possible. I actually drive to work because it is, but I drive a Harley. I've got a, I've got a Harley fat boy um, that I drive to, to work every day. 
um, because it uh, takes less time than, than taking the train to get over there. Um, and the school itself has done an admirable job uh, in onboarding you know, people last year and people this year during COVID. Uh, and yeah, um, I think that's probably about, about all I can say, except that I'm really looking forward to being able to see more of the, of the country and restaurants and things like that, that I just don't get to see at the moment. Definitely. Well, I was hoping to be in Asia right now, but unfortunately that's not going to happen, but, um, fingers crossed next year, the, um, obviously right now we're recording this in, in August, it's kind of Asia's Europe's getting a bit better. Asia's got getting worse, like not every country, but you know, generally, so I'm hoping it's going to be, you know, for the people's sake, get better. And then hopefully people can start traveling there. Well, I, I noticed today that the, you know, Japan was really late to the party with, with getting vaccinations. They didn't really start until I want to say May. Uh, and, and yet, as I was told by um, a parent who works with Pfizer, um, he, he said once the, the Japanese do get going with the vaccinations, it will be very re well regimented and it will roll out. And as of right now, the number of people, the percentage of the population in Japan that are fully vaccinated uh, is comparable to the United States. And it's going to surpass that probably in the next, next week or two. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's some concern definitely about this Delta variant, Delta, I mean, variants in general. Um, but I would say that the, the anxiety level, thanks to the vaccine is a lot more manageable than, than it was. And I take it, uh, ASIJ is teaching virtually. You started school again and you're all at home or you're physically in school. We're at school. So okay. we're, we're, everyone's wearing a mask. Um, but we are fully there. You know, last year we had, uh, you had not in person, you had a hybrid and, the, and then you had fully in person hybrid, meaning that different classes were taking different days to come to school in order to maintain some separation, you know, distance between the kids. But right now we are, we're fully at the school. Um, and, uh, you know, it's only been a, we're just a week. So <laughs> let's see how things go. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, well positive thoughts. Definitely. Sorry, sorry, John. No, I just wishing uh, Clive positive thoughts in that context. It's always yeah, quite course, challenging. Yeah, um, challenging. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, as I said, um, I just I have nothing. Um, Negative is the wrong word, but I, I just I, I get positive vibes from the families at the school and the people who work there. So, um, and that's 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 about what you can ask for at the moment. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Great. Well, I think a good, good place to close it. We've exactly one hour. So we've, we've, I know John's probably got 10 meetings on his calendar, like to, to Jim Fonser. Like Clive, so. Clive and I are both at work. So, uh, yeah. yeah, well, I'm, I'm at work. I just work for oh, myself. No, you're, so you're, I, haven't, I haven't got a stick schedule as you guys. Yeah. Clive's eight hours ahead. Sorry. You're very likely getting ready for your evening drink. <laughs> uh, it's seven o'clock uh, in the evening here. So I need to uh, probably feed the dog before she um, chews my leg off. Um, <laughs> And I will no doubt um, have a beer or something, but, uh, but that's, you know, good. that's good. Tasha's in, Tasha's in the U.S. at the moment because she went to drop off Oscar in North Carolina and Yvonne in okay. Vermont. So um, gonna going to watch Yvonne. She's going to watch Yvonne play his first couple of games from Middlebury. Great. Fantastic. Great. Well, wish him all the best and much success uh, with their journey as uh, in their universities. 
Mm -hmm. Cheers, guys. Yeah, well, okay, uh, see you, Clive. Lovely catching up.